Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by state historian emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. Connecticut Explored magazine is celebrating its 20th anniversary and our Grading the Nutmeg podcast its 7th anniversary. Neither of these milestones could have been reached without your support. Please make a gift to our new Fund for Excellence in Publishing at ctexplore.org. And I need to ask our listeners for another piece of assistance. The podcast is part of our 20 for 20 Innovation in Connecticut History series, and we'd like your feedback. Take our five-minute survey and get a free copy of Connecticut Explored Magazine. You'll find the survey link in the show notes for this episode. Thank you. When was the color line broken in the Hartford Fire Department? And how did a high school dropout and a Vietnam vet both become distinguished firefighters in the Hartford Fire Department? Hear their inspiring firsthand stories of growing up in Hartford's African-American community in the North End and dive into the detective work done to uncover the story of William Henry Jacklin, Hartford's first black firefighter. Our 2022 winter issue of Connecticut Explored magazine celebrates citizen historians who come to their subjects because of maybe a deep need to understand something or to uncover some person or event or answer a question that they just couldn't brush aside. Many become public advocates for their historical findings and projects. Both of my guests in this episode, Chief Charles Teal Sr. and Captain Stephen Harris, were honored as Connecticut History Game Changers by Connecticut Explored Magazine, and both are passionate avocational historians. Chief Teal served as a member of the Hartford Fire Department from 1982 to 2010 retiring as chief. Always interested in Hartford's history, even as a teenager, Chief Teal researched and documented the many outstanding accomplishments of the Hartford Fire Department to the fire service profession throughout its 221-year history. This included uncovering the story of William Henry Jacklin. My second guest is Captain Stephen Harris, who began his career as a firefighter in 1970, retiring in 1997 as a captain in the department, and who was voted Firefighter of the Year in Connecticut. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Chief Teal, I know you grew up in Hartford. Could you tell us a little bit about your childhood in Hartford? Well, I um, was born and raised in the city of Hartford, lived all over the city. Charter Oak Terrace, Bellevue Square. Uh, lived at 43 Greenfield Street, called the Crown Garden Apartments, and a project known as Bowles Park. So that that covers everything from birth until the age of 18 anyway. But um, yeah, born and raised in the city of Hartford. I attended Hartford schools. I wish I could say I did better in Hartford schools, but this is quite relevant. I was once asked the question by a man named Bill Edmonds when I was um, not doing well when it came to pursuing an education. He asked me the question, he said, do you know how many people spent their lives, risked their lives, and sometimes gave their lives so that you could have the opportunity to succeed? And fortunately for me, when I was growing up in the city of Hartford, I had a grandmother, Pearl Wood Smith, and a grandfather, Benjamin Smith, who moved up to the city of Hartford from Georgia around 1916. Actually, my grandmother moved up with my great-grandparents in 1916. And I would always ask her, you know, tell me about Hartford in the olden days. I just had that natural curiosity when I was a child. 
And it filled me with an appreciation for the history of the city of Hartford. I knew quite a bit by the time I was 18 and I was asked that question by Mr. Edmonds, you know, do you know any people spent their lives, et cetera. I saw the correlation. And I, I tell people this story as often as I can because I think it should be shared with young people nowadays. They should know that their actions reflect how grateful or ungrateful they are when it comes to the sacrifices of the past. I know you you had a little bit of a struggle getting through high school, but yeah. you really turned it around. Could you just tell that story? I don't mind at all. I didn't know if I should elaborate on it. I kind of breezed over it, accentuating the positive and eliminating the negative, I suppose. <laughs> but um, when I turned 14, I stopped going to school. Just literally didn't make it through the the uh, first semester. And uh, I found getting good grades impossible, which was very strange because in the sixth grade, I was literally an honor roll student, but something happened in between then and the time I turned 14. And a lot of it could, you know, in retrospect, a lot of it has to do with, yeah, initially I was having some challenges with the learning process. And because of that, I later on developed a strategy for learning, understanding, and remembering information I call the tools of learning. I wrote a book on the subject, and uh, I also have a video on YouTube if anyone wants to see it. It's actually five episodes long, and I gave a TED Talk on it also because I actually taught myself how to learn, understand, and remember information for academic and professional success, and it works so well. I've taught it to thousands of people, trying to teach it to, to more people, but yeah, truly, I, in answer to your question, at the age of 14, I dropped out of school. And how did you turn that around? Well, a few years of drifting, I had a desire for money and lied about my age, got a job. I actually worked at EJ Corvettes. <laughs> I did. And after drifting from one job to the other, I had worked in several places. Many people might remember this. The last National Bank restaurant on uh, Main Street in the, old tra in the Travelers Building. It was a restaurant there. I worked as a dishwasher there. And I worked as a busboy at Alice's Kitchen uh, on Cottage Grove Road when Cottage Grove Road used to bend towards the north. Not the way it's built right now, but the building is still there, but no longer Alice's Kitchen. But in any event, I drifted in and out of these jobs, anything that, you know, a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old kid could get. And then when I was getting ready to turn 18, I knew I had to get a real job. I wasn't going to be able to support myself working as a dishwasher. So I, um, I was told by my friends that if I wanted to get a good job, I needed good references. And um, I decided that I would go see my, my fifth grade gym teacher, Walter Doc Hurley, for a reference. Now, you got to understand, I'm 17 years old. I hadn't seen him since I was 11, but I was going to ask him for a reference anyway. So I went to his home, which was at 289 Ridgefield Street. That was his place of residence until the day he passed. I knocked on his door and I said, hello, Mr. Hurley. My name is Charles Teal. I used to be one of your students. I think I'm in trouble and I need your help. And um, he just, and I said it that way simply because I, I had the distinct feeling that something sinister was gaining on me. I really did. So uh, he said, he was reading the newspaper. He closed it up. He said, come on inside, have a seat. So we had a talk, a nice long talk. And um, when I left there, after about an hour, about an hour, I didn't keep track of the time, but it was about an hour, I learned three things. Be of service, get an education, and don't quit. Those three things. I literally wrote them on a piece of paper that was in my mother's car. I drove up there in my mother's car. And um, as I was writing 
what he said out. I mean, I, I said to myself, I should have taken notes while I was talking, but I sat in the car and I wrote on the back of an envelope, be of service, get an education. And when I got to the point where he said, don't quit, I ran out of ink. So I looked around for another pen and I found a pen that wrote in red. And I wrote in red ink, don't quit. I kept that piece of paper with me for 10 years. I don't know what came of it, but by the end of those 10 years, I couldn't quit if I wanted to. So in any event, um, he, he did tell me, he sent me from his home to go see the man that I was referring to earlier, Mr. Bill Edmonds, who was a counselor at Great Harvest Community College. Mr. Edmonds was going to help me get an education. At one point, when I asked Mr. Hurley for a reference, he says, no, I'm not going to give you a reference because you're going back to school. And I said, I can't go back to Weaver and Mr. Hurley. I'll be an 18-year-old freshman. And he said, you don't have to go back to Weaver. You can get a GED, and with that, you can go into college. I had never heard of a GED, but when I got finished with that day, I did. And now I teach people who are trying to get their GED. I teach and tutor them. But um, yeah, I did get my GED with some persistence. Went on to college, got an associate's degree in fire technology, a bachelor's degree in human services, and a master's degree in public administration. So it worked. I know Doc Hurley was an inspirational you know, legend, really, and you've written about him. What made you decide uh, that firefighting was where you wanted to be? Mm. Well, actually, I, I did get my GED and I was able to get a, a job, a good job. I was uh, working for the Metropolitan District Commission in the waste treatment plant. A lot of people might say, well, that's a tough job. I can't tell you how much I appreciated that position. But while I was working there, I was driving south where Albany Avenue meets Main Street, the area that the old timers from Hartford called the tunnel. So I'm going into the area and all of a sudden I looked up to my right and there was heavy smoke coming out of the building. I'm like, well, that's peculiar. You don't see that every day. And the heavy smoke turned in the flame, and I went through the light and started banging on doors, telling people, get out of the building, and there was a jewelry store close by. And uh, I went into the store, and I said, call the fire department. Uh, the building next door is on fire. And the guy says, you're kidding. And I said, no, give me the phone. You know, I didn't have a cell phone. This is 1980, yeah. I think it was. So um, I said, give me the phone if you want me to call, uh, but the building next door is on fire. So he said, no, I'll call. He called. And I stood there and I watched. If you look north from where I was, you can see Company Twos, which is at the corner of Main and Belden Street. And I remember seeing the firefighters come out of the firehouse and pull up to the building on fire and go to work and extinguish that fire. And when I saw that, I said, that's for me. I want to become a firefighter. So I, I applied. I applied. That's impressive because. If I was in the middle of a fire, I don't think I would, that would not be my first thought, but it's impressive that it was your first thought. Steve, can you tell me about growing up in Hartford? Oh, absolutely. Uh, as you know, I'm a lifelong resident of Hartford. One of the things that I, I remember most about Hartford, that Hartford, when I was growing up, was a very diverse city. As a matter of fact, my family, we live on Cleveland Avenue. My family was the first Black family on Cleveland Avenue, and that was for a while. And I just remember going to, uh, C.A. Barber School from kindergarten right on until I left in the eighth grade and went on to Weaver. But what I remember most about growing up, again, was that it was diverse. My next door neighbors were my, my best friend's name was David Cutler, a Jewish family, but right next door. And I remember I asked David one time, I said, how do you guys get two Christmases? And his parents, 
took the time to explain to me about the Jewish holiday and would invite me over because we were next door neighbors, would, would invite me over when they would light the candles on. And I just and I just remember such a wonderful childhood is the best way to put it, you know. And we had at the time up the street on the corner was the triple A flying stables. It was a horse stable at the corner of Barbara and Cleveland Avenue. I remember as a kid sometimes in the house where one of those horses would get away, it would come galloping down Cleveland Avenue. I'd hear that. And it was just, I mean, Keeney Park was my was my playground as a young, as a child as a young man, as a teenager. I mean, just, I have nothing but fond memories of growing up in Hartford. Now I will say this, I left Hartford in, in 1966 and I went off to the military. I was 19 years old, uh, this is 66. In 1967, I wound up in the jungles of Vietnam in the infantry. In 1968, I came back to Hartford, right out of Vietnam. And I was just shocked of what I saw when I got back here. It was, I came home three weeks after Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. I left, a, I left a street that was a diverse street. I came back to a street that luckily we weren't burning like a lot of the city was, but all my white neighbors had moved. I had no more white neighbors. And I just remember that being the, the, the change that took place after the assassination of Dr. King. And, and I just remember times sitting in that jungle, wondering if I was ever going to get back home. And when I was at my lowest point, I could always take my weapon, my M16, turn it over on its side and look at the magazine housing. Well, inscribed on it was on every M16 that was in Vietnam, manufactured Colt firearms, Hartford, Connecticut. And just seeing Hartford would lift my spirit and help carry me through that terrible part of my life. And I, it just coming back home to a city that was just, to me, was everything, was everything. I remember sitting in the jungle with other young soldiers talking about Hartford, what a great city Hartford was. And, you know, as I said, that, that, that year that Dr. King was assassinated, like four weeks later, I was home. And Hartford had changed. Hartford had changed. Chief Till was just telling us that he actually encountered a fire as he was driving along and he watched the firefighters come out of the station and really tackle saving people in this fire. And that gave him really kind of the idea to become a firefighter. How did you decide you would become one? You know, it's funny. One of my classmates' father was one of the first, uh, well, actually not the first, William Henry Jacklin was, was the first, but after William Henry Jacklin, in 1948, one of my classmates' dads was one of the next six black firefighters that was 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 uh, hired for the Hartford Fire Department. And I would see his father from time to time in his uniform. And it just really, you know, it's not like I, I grew up wanting to be a firefighter. But after I was discharged from the service, I said, listen, I got to make a living. And I remember I just, I didn't want to go back to factory work. I had worked there for a short period before I went to service. That's just not for me. As a matter of fact, I was on, I, I just woke up one morning and said, I can't do this, can't do this factory stuff, but I got to be able to take care of my family. And I was going to re-enlist back in the service. And I was walking to the bus stop and I, another firefighter who I knew, John Abrams, saw me. And as I got to the bus stop and we started talking, he asked me where I was going. And I said, well, listen, man, I, I you know, I got to get a job. I, I can't do factory work. So I'm going to go back in the service, make the service a career. And he said, well, wait a minute, before you do that, now you just got back from Vietnam and, and you know, 
the fire department is, is hired. And he took me to his house and sat me down for about an hour. And when he finished, he said, I want you to go down to personnel and I want you to apply. And I just, some said, okay, I got nothing to lose. I, I went down and I applied. And just I like to tell young firefighters today, that was the best thing that I did. Not only was it a great job, I literally loved the job. And, and, and I loved the job because I saw all the good work it was doing in, in, in neighborhoods like, in my neighborhood in particular, in neighborhoods like mine around the city. You know, we just, we, it, it just, it, it's one of those things that I tell young firefighters today. Everybody can't do this job. You gotta wanna be a firefighter. But again, like I said, had it not been for a, 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 a fellow by the name of John Abrams, I don't know. The Phoenix Society is a black fraternal organization of firefighters that was formed in 1965 in Hartford. John B. Stewart Jr., Hartford's first African-American fire chief, was the first president. The society works to help its members toward promotional goals and to foster a closer relationship with the community. Could you tell me a little bit about the Phoenix Society? Yes. As a matter of fact, the Phoenix Society is the organization consisting of Black firefighters from the Hartford Fire Department, primarily. Sometimes we've had firefighters from other organizations joined the Phoenix Society in the past. That may be the case now, it may not. I have served in every position in the Phoenix Society. I mean, president, vice president, secretary, everything but treasurer. I've done all the positions in the organization. I joined the organization primarily because my mentor at the time, the late Fire Chief John B. Stewart Jr., was a member of the organization and a founding member of the organization, as a matter of fact, I should say. I don't think there's enough time in this podcast to address all that he did for me, for the Hartford Fire Department, for so many individuals. But just one portion of what I'd like to say is this. When I was working at the Metropolitan District Commission, I received notification that I'd, I passed the test to become a firefighter. And I was talking with a guy who had worked as a volunteer firefighter in one of the surrounding towns, and he had on firefighting boots. So I simply said, you got on firefighting boots, you know, why is that? And he, he said he was a, a, a firefighter. And um, I told him, I said, I took the test to become a firefighter in Hartford, but I'm thinking about not taking it. I've got a job here, it's paying the bills and you know, I'm raising a family. And he said, are you nuts? He said, have you ever seen Chief Stewart? I didn't know who Chief Stewart was at that time. I said, no. He said, go and see Chief Stewart. And he says, after you see him, come back and tell me you don't want to become a firefighter. So I actually took the time. It was me and a friend of mine, Michael Kitchens, whose father was one of the first black firefighters to come on in 1948. He was one of those that came on. But I went for a run with Michael Kitchens past the Boys and Girls Club now. It was a boys, it was a boys club then on Nam Drive in Hartford. We are just jogging. We wanted to see Chief Stewart. And when I saw Chief Stewart, I didn't want to become a firefighter anymore. I wanted to become fire chief. And I told him that story. I've told him that story on several occasions. And, you know, I had the, uh, the privilege of being part of that group of individuals that made it possible to name Company 14s in his honor. That's now named the Fire Chief John B. Stewart Jr. Firehouse. I don't know if I, if I detoured off of what we were discussing here, but he's the one who initially told me about the importance of joining the Phoenix Society, and I did. As a matter of fact, I, I was mentioning earlier about how uh, Mark Twain said, if you don't have a character worth appreciating, assume one. 
I didn't have a character worth appreciating. I knew it. It wasn't one that would make me a leader in the organization of any kind. So for the first 10 years of my career, I tried to be like Chief Stewart. And I told him that in a setting similar to this, as a matter of fact. I conducted several interviews of uh, notable individuals in the Hartford Fire Department from the Connecticut Historical Society years ago. But that was the first time I think he ever heard that story. But that's the, the way I got started, emulating him. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. On December 7th, 1898, the Hartford Current published a long column of information and names under the headline, Firemen Appointed. But it contained this bombshell. The subheading read, A Colored Man Made Member of the Force. Here's what the article revealed. The following men were placed on the substitute list. James H. Bolin, O.E. Bulls, Thomas F. Dunn, A.E. Dingwell, William H. Jacklin, William J. King, George F. McNary, J.J. Shannon, Ernest C. Stowell, John A. Nietzsche. All of the men were called before the board, weighed and measured as to height. Jacqueline is a colored man, the first of the African race to be appointed in the department. He was recommended by F.H. Chapin, Edward M. Bunce, and G.C.F. Williams. He was also well spoken of by two or three commissioners. He was put on the list on motion of Commissioner Ulrich. He is a porter at T. Sisson & Company. Steve, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the William Henry Jacklin story and how he's been commemorated and celebrated by the Phoenix Department, Phoenix Society, and the whole city of Hartford. William Henry Jacklin is one of those truly early on unsung heroes in the Hartford Fire Department. I never knew about William Henry Jacklin until I got to the fire department. And it was the old time was the matter of fact, I had the privilege of working with 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 all of those six. I've worked with five in, in, in my early part of my career in the Hoffa Fire Department. And I never knew, you know, when they would tell me the story about William Henry Jacklin, you know, I'm a young guy. <laughs> like I said, I'd been in the service, you know, I'm kind of like, you know what? Uh, but the more I listened to these guys and when I saw that they they were sincere about my growth in the department. And one, one, as Charlie talked about his story with, with, with going to see Chief Stewart, I remember one day I was up in, I was at the station, and there was a gentleman who was, who was kind of like my, one of my guardian angels, Ben Laurie. And we were up, you know, doing our chores in the firehouse. And he said to me, he said, uh, Steve, you ask yourself, why is the rookie firefighter probation? You, you've got a bunk that's over, kind of like to yourself. And, you know, all the rest of us are kind of side by side. And I said, no, I just thought that's what you guys wanted me. And he, and he talked about that being the black bed, where early that those group of guys, when they first came on, they were kind of maybe they were kind of ostracized. And the bed that I was sleeping in at that particular time was what was considered the black bed. And that's why I was off over by itself, because all the other bunks were taken. And. As I listened to that story, 
it, it made me look at these gentlemen and wonder what they endured to be on this department. And when they talked about William Henry Jackson, it wasn't, they just said that he was, he was the first guy on and, you know, what he had to go through. And then they talked about their own experiences. When they came on, they could, they, they were stationed at certain firehouses. Charlie, you can jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, because Charlie's our historian. It was Engine 2, Ladder 3, at Main and Belden, and 14th. And because there wasn't, again, these guys couldn't be detailed. Detailed is if you come in and another firehouse is short, you know, you, you got a few extra guys, you can send the guys, a guy or two to the short fire. These guys couldn't be transferred because there was no black beds at the other firehouse. Those, those are the guys that had to endure the black beds and things of that. Couldn't be detailed. And Charlie could go into detail about that because, again, he's our historian. But but as I said, you know, when you when I started to to listen to their stories and these these guys would, would for me, Charlie talked about Chief Stewart. Chief Stewart was a giant to me as well. Maybe, Chief Teal, you could tell us the William Henry Jacklin story. And picking up on Steve's thoughts about how there was a kind of a de facto segregation with the way the firemen slept, et cetera, I think if you could tease out that story for us, that'd be great. Well, the um, the information I learned about William Henry Jacklin came about in part because of my um, connection with the Connecticut Historic Society. Certainly, I had heard about William Henry Jacklin as a member of the Phoenix Society, but didn't know a lot about him other than there was an award named after him and it was given to that firefighter of the year. But I didn't know a lot at that point in time. I was always studying history. I still study history, I still do. I'm fascinated by American history in particular, but as a member of the Hartford Fire Department, I studied everything. There's something in the Connecticut Society called the Horace B. Clark collection. So over 5,000 photographs of the city of Hartford at various emergencies. Horace B. Clark was a commissioner for the Hartford Fire Department, and um, he was also employed by the Hartford Current. He had a fast time tape or a portion of the old alarm system installed in his house. And whenever the, there was a fire, he'd go to a fire and take photographs. That's why there's 5,000 photographs. One of the photographs I came across was of William Henry Jacklin looking right in the camera, and the caption underneath said, Hartford's first colored fireman, William Henry Jacklin. And the look on his face was one of amazement. You could tell he was completely alone, but he was waiting his turn to go in. He was going to be on the line and do his share fighting the fire. But that's how I was introduced to him in a sense. And one day I decided that what I would do is simply pay my respects because I read, I read everything. I read his obituary and it said that he was buried in Spring Grove Cemetery. So at the time, Spring Grove Cemetery had a manager by the name of Al Lennox. I haven't spoke with him in quite some time, but Al Lennox. And Al and I had a discussion about William Henry Jacklin and Al had still the, the old card file of where everyone was located in the cemetery. And one day he said, I found him. And I said, who? He says, William Henry Jacklin. I said, can you take me to him, to his, his gravesite? He said, absolutely. So we traveled. We went to the area close to where pole syrup used to be. Steve, I'm sure, remembers pole syrup. So we went to that area. And at that time, I had recently become a master mason. Prince Hall affiliation, Tuscan Lodge, number 17. I'm still a member of that lodge, the junior warden of that lodge. 
So I know the symbol of the square and compass. And as I walked up to William Henry Jacklin's grave site, I saw the square and compass and almost passed out. And Al Ennis looked at me and said, what's the matter? I said, this man was a master mason. He said, he was? And I said, absolutely. And I showed him the symbol. So I said, it says Jacqueline, but it doesn't say his name. So it was explained to me that the headstone that was there was actually a, a family headstone. And when Henry Jacqueline's wife, Sarah, was buried there with a headstone saying Sarah Jacqueline, but there wasn't one for William Henry Jacqueline. So we took the time as a department to honor William Henry Jacqueline. It's kind of a long story. It took a while for me to prove that he was actually a master mason. Just having the symbol isn't enough. I'm sure Steve remembers uh, Cecil Austin. Cecil Austin was very prominent. Um, he's now deceased, but very prominent in uh, the Phoenix Society and the Masons. And I explained to Cecil Austin the situation. I said, did you know he was a master mason? And he said, no, I never knew that. And I was surprised to hear that. I said, well, does anyone know anything about him? So he says, no, but let's go talk with. And we, we went to go see Matt Bolden. Matt Bolden was a grandmaster of Prince Hall Masons in 1973, 1974. But Matt Bolden was also a police officer. We sat down with Matt Bolden and said, William Henry Jacqueline was a master Mason, but we need proof. We need someone to verify it, not just you know the symbol on his headstone. And he said, I don't remember anyone by the name of William Henry Jacqueline. So we didn't know what to do at that point when suddenly Matt Bolden's wife, Ann, walked through the living room and she overheard the conversation. She said, Jacqueline? I said, yes. She said, William Henry Jacqueline? I said, yes. And she said, yeah, he was. I knew his family. They all said he was a Mason. And it just, it opened up everything. And honestly, we literally had statewide representatives from the Prince Hall Masons at his gravesite. Uh, we had members of the Hartford Fire Department. They weren't ordered to be there. They wanted to be there. And, you know, not just black firefighters, white firefighters, Hispanic, but they were all there to see us lay a headstone at William Henry Jacklin's gravesite with his name on it, William Henry Jacklin. And if you look at it, it's got not just the uh, square and compass, but it also has the Maltese cross meaning that he was a Hartford firefighter. It says HFD, Hartford Fire Department Honor. Can you tell us uh, the story about him uh, not transitioning maybe from a volunteer firefighter to a professional firefighter and why? Yes, well, the record shows that he served as a volunteer firefighter, but it's, you know, the, the term volunteerism is, it's a colloquial expression. Yes, he he did not, he did not work as, a paid full-time firefighter, but the volunteer firefighters were paid on a daily basis. As far back as 1789, literally in 1789, each man was paid a shilling and sixpence per day. Of course, the currency changed as years went by, but they would, and, and I knew a person who lived right across the street here who was, who works under, he's now deceased too. So many of these people are gone and it's, it's hard. But we used to laugh about it because he called himself Smokey. He was, he was one of those guys. He said, we, he said, we used to sit in the watch room, and if someone didn't show up for work, they would hire us, and we would work for the day as firefighters. But they didn't work without pay, but they were considered volunteer. The Hartford Fire Department did not become a permanently paid department until 1909. 
William Henry Jacklin worked until the train station fire of 1914. He distinguished himself at that fire. There have been three train stations at that location. The second one was so very badly burned, they had to build the one that is currently there, which has been restored. But in any event, um, he was told that, yes, he could become, after that fire, he could become a firefighter, but he would not be allowed to sleep in, in the bunk room with the other firefighters. And apparently uh, insulted and disgusted by the, uh, the discrimination, he decided to end his um, association with the Hartford Fire Department at, at that time. We were just talking about um, Fire Chief John B. Stewart Jr. John B. Stewart Sr. knew William Henry Jacklin, knew him personally. So, you know, this, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I, Steve and I both, I'm sure, remember uh, John B. Stewart Sr. So after that 1914 fire, Jacqueline really refuses to be discriminated against uh, in terms of the sleeping arrangements and what would they have expected him to do? Just go home every night or given a, a bed in the actual firehouse? They would have provided him with a bed, but it, as Steve was just saying, it would not have been along with the other firefighters. Under those conditions, they probably would have put him in a separate room. I mean, back mm -hmm. in 1914, it was... The, the conditions that Steve described were in 1948 and afterward, but for 1914, I can only imagine how challenging it must have been. One of the, the firefighters, oh, this is going into it too deeply probably, but based upon what I've been able to discover, my research shows that many of the fire chiefs were Masons. I think it was his association with Masons, William Henry Jackson's association with Masons, that made it possible for him to be hired at all because most black men would not have been considered for the position. He lived, he, he was in at Company 7s. I have a, um, a collage of photographs from 1909 that shows William Henry Jacklin in his full dress uniform, says Company 7s on it. Um, Company 7s used to be at the corner of, just about at the corner of Main and Sanford Street. He used to live on Crane Court and he also lived on, um, Warren Street. But when he left the fire department, he started working for Weaver High School as a messenger sometime after. I mean, this was not immediately afterwards, but he was working as a messenger for Weaver High School at one point, which led me to ask the people at Weaver High School some years ago if a photograph of William Henry Jackson could be displayed in their school. And they actually had it on display for quite some time. I don't know if they still do. It's been a couple of years since I've been in the school. Steve, maybe you could tell us about the mural that the Phoenix Society helped sponsor on their building that commemorates him. You know, it's Chief Till is, is, is my hero. He, this guy oh, is, he is my hero. Uh, and let me say this. You just mentioned where, where William Henry Jacklin Station was at the corner of Sanford and Maine. Well, the Phoenix Society is down the block at Sanford and Windsor Street. And, and for me, the, the one thing that, I, that worries me more than anything, particularly now in the times that we're living in now, is that people will be forgotten. You know, when we hear about, you know, folks objecting to certain books being in libraries, when we hear about critical race theory. And, and for me, it's always been that the Black folks have contributed a lot to the makeup of this city and the success of this city. And, and for me, art is universal. And as a people, Black folks, we're very visual. I mean, and, and, and again, so 
here we are, a black organization in our neighborhood. And, and it came one day I happened to be going past one of our rec centers and I saw this Willie West Center chief. I saw this beautiful mural on the side of that rec center. And I said, my God, that's beautiful. And it's in the middle of what some people might consider a ghetto or the hood or whatever. And I said to myself, with all that we've contributed as Black men and women in the fire service, in service to this city, there's very few things that that show that. And I said, here we have this building with these, these clean, open walls. I said, this is a way to show what Black men and women have contributed in the fire service of this city. And who better to be the figure of that than William Henry Jackson, our very first. And that, that for me, was, it's, it's just important that when young people growing up, when young people, and I remember when we were doing that mural, people would, because we had a very busy corner, people would literally stop and say, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. Young people would, who is that? Who is that? And we would explain. And so. If, 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 if I can have a wish for Hartford, it's that throughout this city, we should have art displayed that showed what folks, whether they be white, black, Latina, what, what, what their contributions were. I could not rest if we would be forgotten. Because again, I know the sacrifices we made, not only to this country, but the, to this city. Both of you have been so instrumental in keeping alive the history putting it, uh, documents and records in the, in places like the Hartford History Center, creating public art that commemorates these important individuals in the fire department and important events. Just briefly in closing, could each of you just tell me what you hope the future generations will see from this work that you've done or what they'll gain from it? Chief, you wanna go first? I, I have to reflect on a statement that I, I made earlier, primarily because I think of it every day. I was 17 years old, I'm 67 now, but I think of this every day. When Bill Edmonds saw I wasn't doing anything with my life and I knew something about history, he asked me, do you know how many people spent their lives, risked their lives, and sometimes gave their lives so that you could have the opportunity to succeed? And I must tell you, right now, I think I'm on 18 committees. I'm not exactly. <laughs> I thought I was bad, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know the what I what I I'm trying to say, and I'm, I also teach people who are trying to get their GEDs and uh, high school diplomas. Adults, the reason why I can do the things I do is because out of nothing less than gratitude. I know how much people have sacrificed. I think about how when Steve Harris was in Vietnam, I'm sitting around here doing nothing, and I I told you already earlier, how I had dropped out of high school. Just sorry, just doing nothing. But I know how many people spent their lives, risked their lives and gave their lives. And I know the correlation between their sacrifices and my actions. So when I feel like I haven't got anything else to give and I wanna go down to Florida and just hang out. <laughs> I go, yeah, I, I say to myself, you better stay here and pay back what you got. You know, there's, there's an expression. If you can count your blessings, you better give a blessing. You better give a blessing. So. Thank you, Chief Teal. And Captain Harris, did you have any uh, closing thoughts on that? 
I, my, my thoughts are similar to the Chiefs. And, and the one thing that I always took pride in was the wearing of that uniform because I wore it back and forth to my neighborhood. And I never forget, I was at a national convention and we were having our memorial march and we were in Buffalo, New York. And we make, when we have our national conventions, we have a church service in the black community at a church in the black community. And I remember all these black firefighters from around the country, and in some cases from, from the Caribbean as well, in our class A uniforms marching to a church. And I remember getting to standing in line, waiting to go into church, and an elderly black woman walked up to me and said, if I had my way, I would have y'all march every day in your uniforms to our neighborhood so our young people can see what they can be. Because that phrase, it's hard to be what you never see, is true. It is absolutely true. That has stayed with me to this day. And the guys in the Phoenix will tell you, when I see them in their uniforms, if they're not squared up, then that army drill sergeant comes out and me. Square that uniform up, boy, a young lady, square it up. So again, for me, it's just, as I said, my just the mural on the side of the building is that our young people can see what they can be. Thank you both so much. My thanks to today's guests. You'll find the links to the Phoenix Society and the Hartford Public Library in our show notes. While you're there, please complete the five-minute survey about this episode. Join Connecticut Explored's 20th anniversary celebration by subscribing at ctexplore.org. New subscribers get six issues for the price of four with our holiday sale before December 31, 2022. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan of High Wattage Media. Join us for our next episode in two weeks. See you then.